our people diverse and beautiful will emerge battered and beautiful when day comes we step out of the shade of flame and unafraid the new dawn blooms as we free it for there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it if only we're brave enough to be it <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, once again. This marks part two of our interview with Dr. Richard Baldwin, Professor of International Trade at the Graduate Institute here in Geneva, Switzerland, international author, and everyone's favorite hat connoisseur. Tune into the entirety of part two to make sure you catch up on why the future of trade will probably look radically different, how countries and workers will need to adapt, as well as listen to us debate the finer points of what makes the perfect kebab. Yes, you heard that right. Also, apparently, bikes get stolen in Lausanne, too. So can I ask a question which may be closer to our work, which is working out of Africa, where, where a lot of the small businesses we work with are? Is digital going to finally transform goods trade out of Africa? Is it going to make things cheaper, easier? Is it going to make things... Or, or will this growth sort of mean that they miss out on this? So business process outsourcing, will we need that if you have machine learning that translates very quickly and instantly? So automation essentially is, is extinguishing trade because trade exists from Africa because of the labor cost share and the fact that their labor is cheaper. The inputs and the machines are globally traded, so that does not create comparative advantage. And as automation reduces labor cost share in manufacturing, stuff will just be made locally because you won't be able to afford shipping it. And you already see little, little emblems of that, you know, like in this famous Adidas factory that makes soccer boots custom because it's basically a robot, one guy who runs a whole bunch of robots. So even though he's making three times more than what they would make in Kenya, the, the immediacy compensates for it. So ultimately, automation will extinguish trade in manufactured goods and make it all locally. Now, I don't know how fast it's going to happen, but that, that I think is, is the long run. I think long run, the development pathway based on industrialization is shutting off. But this service sector one is opening up in, in compensation. I, I just wonder, because when I was first working in the mid-90s, we had a partner at the firm I was working at. He wrote a book which said, big firms, you know, the returns to scale will disappear. There'll be small distributed companies. So, you know, every, every company will be, you know, 100 people. And that's not happening. Returns to scale are increasing. So tell me, you know, how, is this going to happen to your prediction as well? Or do you, are you, do you, can you guarantee us this? I, I actually, hold on, hold on. I'm just getting some breaking news. Amazon has just bought both the Graduate Institute yes. and the UN. Not this <laughs> podcast, though, unfortunately. <laughs> Let's me. put it this way. This very highly automated factories will be scale intensive, but there will be one in Europe to satisfy Europe and there'll be one in Africa to satisfy Africa. And the cost difference won't be big enough between the two to concentrate the production and therefore ship it. Mm. So the, the, the point is, is that the labor share goes down, yeah. the labor cost share goes down and it's not the scale. But anyways, you know, the about the future, you know, the future is unknowable, but it's inevitable. So we have to talk about it. But there's no guarantees that it'll work. So don't remember what I say will happen. Remember the logic I use to think about what may happen, because you are going to have to, to come back to what, what Rob's job's going to be like, you will have to figure out what this means for you. And you can't just listen to somebody else and say, oh, he's got it right. And I guess that's what, I mean, my daughters are 25 and 21. They actually have to think 
very seriously about what skills are useful but was a is it is a bachelor's degree from the university also i don't think i like that response because gen zers and millennials like me we're not really good with personal responsibility but it's like everything else is it's your fault basically <laughs> it's your fault we're having this discussion that's yeah i've heard this i've heard i've heard this from all generations i think the idea is that you know, people will have to be flexible people have to change jobs a lot more i think the market will guide us into the jobs with which are existing but one thing that's slightly different about this transformation than the manufacturing to service is that it'll be one service job to another service job. And service jobs have a lot of overlap. So your day job and what you're doing now actually have some overlap. Some of the skills you need to do both help. And if you had to shift off into journalism or shift off into accounting or, or market management or whatever, it wouldn't be all that different. So the skill sets overlap. And so it's not like somebody in Janesville, Wisconsin, who's 50 years old, the factory closes, and the only good job is like 200 miles away and everything else is like working at IHOP, Pancake House. So that, that's, that's different, we, I think. We, we love IHOP though. This is a true story. I've been talking about Janesville in many of these podcasts. It's yeah. like ground zero. Yeah, It's good to eat, but I, you probably don't want to work there. So we are a podcast, as the name implies. We talk a lot about trade. So I think this will form part of our, our trade wars really that bad segment. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we, we talk about, you know, we, we here we've talked a lot about the trade wars, the cost to the US, for instance, as economists, is that really a big deal? Because, you know, a lot of people are asking, and now we'll have a chance maybe as Brexit's a kind of laboratory for this. So is it really a big deal to make your trade less efficient, you know, in favor of, to, to put it kind of uh, crudely, in, in favor of other objectives? So the, one of the problems with trade the, as an academic profession and people in the trade world, there basically was only people thinking about trade and not yeah. the government policies, which should be used to compensate the flanking policies, if you will. It would be unprofessional. It would have been viewed as unprofessional if I was going to talk about active labor market policy at the same time as I was talking about what should we do in the Uruguay round. In the Bush administration, for example, I would not have even been allowed to talk about labor market policies. So to a certain extent, the silos meant that the trade was being talked about by itself. Now, the, the whole point about this is if you want to do it right, is you have government policies that help people adjust so that they feel like they have a chance that they're going to be at least part of the winners, not just the losers. And when you go to countries like Denmark, where they have flex security, the government stands ready to find you another job no matter what they have to do. They're really okay with globalization and automation because they know that the adjustment will happen. And it won't all fall on them. It's in the United States above all, but partly in England, where all the adjustment fell on the shoulders of the workers. And the fact that it fell on the shoulders of the, of the workers really led to a lot of discontent. And in the United States, as you will have seen, the you know, median income hasn't increased for, for 20, 30 years. And that people are angry about, and they should be. Whereas in Europe or France, for example, it's not, it's not like that at all. So, so it's really a lack of government policy. So when you, when you say, is it really all that bad? What we've learned is worse than we thought was that trade liberalization without flanking policies may actually disrupt the fabric of society on which the basis of the whole progress was made. And then you get a Trump or Brexit, which then causes all sorts of problems. But the best is that you have a European social democratic system where you share the costs of changing jobs, whether it's demography or climate or trade or technology, you, you have the society helping people adjust. And that adjustment is the key to the progress which the whole society is benefiting from. So I would 
reject your question, <laughs> rephrase it, and then say, you're right, but at the same time, you missed the key point. With, with all due respect, this is our podcast. We'll do the rejecting around here. <laughs> <laughs> Since you have the since you have the editing pen, you you get to do yes, whatever yes. you want. This conversation never happened, actually. <laughs> but let me ask you that. So yes, we're with you. So how do we make this argument? Yeah. So we, aren't we? Isn't that what we're trying to do? Actually, on that, Rob, that's a perfect segue into something that is quite re relevant from a, at least a U.S. perspective. So you have a, a new government. Sort of Biden will be inaugurated allegedly. On the, on the 20th of January, despite what we've seen in the news recently. And him and the Democrats have spoken a lot about building back better, focusing on rebuilding domestic industries, etc. So considering what you've just talked about and, and the changes that are happening around this, should they be focusing instead on what you just said? So not, not just ensuring workers in dying industries keep those jobs in those quote-unquote dying industries, but actually they're ready for the jobs of tomorrow. But more importantly, what would that look like? So how do you get a coal miner in West Virginia ready for the jobs of tomorrow. Not, I'm not going to go so far as to say they should be coding tomorrow, but what would that look like, practically speaking? Well, basically, it looks like almost any Western European country where you spend a lot on, on unemployment, income support. You have, right from the get-go, a structure, what Thomas Piketty calls pre-distribution. He, he showed that actually the amount of redistribution in France and the U.S. aren't as different as you might think. But what's really different is that the market distribution is more fair because there's more sociability. So it starts from the get-go that you create more equal opportunities. You, you may have seen that the U.S. is one of the lowest in terms of social mobility. The, mm. the share of people in the top 20% who were born there or came from the bottom 50% is one of the lowest in the whole world right now because of the whole cycle of expensive private schools, expensive universities, you know, the unpaid internships. If you come from a privileged family, you can make it. And if you don't, it's very, very hard. Whereas in, in Europe, where the, there's this pervasive social welfare system and the government is providing free health care, free child care, free medical care. So people can get on and succeed there. So there's no great mystery. All You don't even have to come to Western Europe. If the United States became a lot like, more like Canada, people would be much happier about all these things. So in the Biden administration, they are talking about making American workers. I think Biden gets it. I think, you know, he's he can't talk about moving towards Canada or or, or socializing medicine, but he understands that he has to look after the workers first. And, and I think we have to ask, will the WTO survive because it is paying at least a half of my salary? So, so the WTO, I mean, I always think about people have the naive, simplistic narrative about the WTO. So everybody thinks the WTO is struggling, it can't do anything, but there are countries banging on the door to get in and powerful rich countries during the whole years of failure, like Russia, have made serious political compromises to get in. And that's because when it comes to good old trading goods, it's the place to be and it gives you great privilege. So for, for globalization 1.0, which was shipping things you can drop on your foot around the world, especially when they're made here and sold there, the WTO is king. Those rules are almost universally applied and respected. So that's why the WTO is not going away. What it didn't do is move into the 21st century and set up a bunch of rules. But it just but one thing that Biden will it has shown a great interest in is multilateralism and cooperating with its friends. So I'm quite sure. My guess is that on day one he'll remove the block against Ngozi. He'll have a DG and things will get back. 
Now, it won't be the U.S. of, you know, like George Bush Jr. or Sr., where they're taking a leadership. They're still going to be complaining about the appellate body. They're still going to be complaining about industrial subsidies in China and China's development strategy. But it will be an, it's constructive engagement with like-minded people to try and find a way forward. So that's, that's I, 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 don't, I think the WTO will be re- revitalized. Like the Beatles said. We can work it out. No, we can't work it out. We can't, we, we can. Actually, we can bring in music at that point. Yeah. Richard, I'm sure you're an avid listener of, of tradesplaining. But if you're not, just, just in case, we, we like to do on our interviews is sort of have a bit more of an expat-focused discussion. Right? Get to know you a bit more. Get to know the man behind the famous Panama hats here in Geneva. So first question we'd like to ask is, so you've been in Geneva since before I was born. True story, by the way. Rob pointed that out. What has changed most since you've arrived? And, you know, what has changed least? Well, the traffic has gotten a lot worse. I mean, let's stop the clock at December 2019. The traffic (laughs) was much worse. The airport was much better. The prices of housing just continued to go out of the world. But in, you know, my, my little corner of it is the Graduate Institute. And the Graduate Institute has just thrived. We went from the first 17 years in Geneva. My office was in barracks. It next, right next to the Place de Nation, which was constructed as temporary housing for World War II refugees. I kid you not. <laughs> the latches and stuff you could see had been done by hand. When I got there, you could not dial in directly. There was an operator who connected the phones. Literally, I'm not kidding you. This There was no fax. There was no computers. And it was, it was like incredible. That now we have this amazing building, which I think they built to be an art museum and they put us in by mistake. So over that time from here, how has America changed? Do, do you yeah. look at things differently from here? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's really sad. America is not the country I grew up in in the 70s. It, it, the inequality, I think, is a dominant thing. And, and I have cousins, some of whom made it to, and some of whom didn't. And the way they live is just so different than it was in their parents' generation. My mother was a lawyer. My father was a professor and some of her cousins, you know, they were, you know, they were bus drivers or worked in schools and stuff. They weren't that, that different. And now if you look at the cousins, you know, some of them are really well to do and other ones are really, really struggling. The second thing I think is the guns, the guns and the violence that came with that, I think just went crazy. Now the murder rate went down and all that, but of course I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and you know, we, we all played in the yard. There was no fences or walls. You'd run up and down the backyard. So it was kind of like leave it to beaver kind of thing. But that's, you know, that is faded. So America is not what it was. Except for the the bombing in the early 70s. They bombed the university (laughs) building. Uh, If you met the guys, you'd be surprised they pulled it off. That was the Vietnam War. And, and yeah. That knocked my dad out of bed, that explosion, he, as he tells it. Did it really? Yeah. Okay. I was three, so I was pretty solidly asleep. You believe him. <laughs> <laughs> I have to take his word for it. Walking on the University of Wisconsin campus where they were tear, spreading tear gas from helicopters because the anti-war protests in, in Madison were super strong. There's a great documentary called The War at Home, where they document the struggle mm. mostly around Madison, but they also talk about the Ohio shootings and stuff like that as well. That's a great movie. Uh-huh. In fact, it features a lot Paul Soglin, who's who then became mayor of Madison, then became middle class and it totally sold out. It was awesome. He lived across from me on Kendall Avenue. I feel like a fifth wheel around here. This bromance is getting out of control, like Wisconsin <laughs> love fest. So, Richard, you're very well known here in Geneva and in the trade space. You're an international author, among other things. But the thing you're really known for is your Panama hats. So, the world wants to know 
and we've we've had people write this people in ask. allegedly. Where do you get your hats, and how many of them do you own? Well, they they get wrecked regularly, so I own two currently. That I have one that I now only use for gardening, but I I, I bought them in Peru actually, and they're real Panama hats. But the thing about Panama hats is they cannot tolerate rain. You have to reblock the whole thing. So I also in the winter I have another hat. So I actually have two types of hat. I have a black hat and a Panama hat. I don't know if you've you've seen that. So I I started a blog for for about three weeks and it was called the Two Hatted Economist. Uh, but I was told that that was too subtle to fly. So um, what does the black hat guy say? That's what we want to yeah. know. White hat. That guy sounds interesting. Yeah, so we'll, we'll and, look out for you. You're easy to spot I, in the airport. They're, they're, it's very inconvenient. Nobody has hats anymore. So that's why they get lost and crushed all the time. So I'll tell you another story about my hat. So, you know, I have this Irish skin and grew up in the 60s and 70s when we didn't know about sun being bad for you. You know, there was sunscreen. You just put like some lotion on there and you were supposed to burn every year until your skin toughened up. And as a consequence, <laughs> and my dermatologist told me, about 10 years ago, you have to wear a hat all the time. You have to be known as the guy who wears a hat. So it really started as a medical device, but I decided to turn it into a fashion statement. I've, I've literally seen people taking selfies with you, posting it later, and then saying, look at Richard Baldwin's hat. <laughs> Come for the trade talk, stay for the hats. <laughs> So we, if anything, you know, if it's anything, the podcast is scientific. So we do have to ask you our regular survey questions. You're not an expat in Geneva till you had a bike stolen. Have you had your bike stolen in Geneva? Not mine, but a lot of my kids, several of my kids. Okay. Ding, 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 ding. That, that counts. That counts. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say yes. We've had, we've had a couple of misses lately. And of course, uh, kebab is the national food of Geneva. People talk about, you know, various different kinds of Swiss foods, raclette and so on. Nope. It's kebab. So... What's your favorite kebab in Geneva? Well, I actually live in Lausanne, so I and I almost never go out in Geneva. I've been living here for the entire time. Cut, cut, cut. cut. Wait, what? This interview's over. Wait, what? <laughs> this interview's over. <laughs> so globally, what's your favorite kebab? We could go to that. There's a good one here in Lausanne, which I like. But basically, the you know, it's it's not supposed to be good. It's like Mexican food. You don't want to go to some super refined place where they're using with meat. You want it to be good and greasy, you know, and they go like this and you wish they had washed the inside of the windows last week or something, but is it's a, a little bit of a greasy spoon and it's it's comfort food. You, you normally, you know, you've had, you've been out of the pub, you've had, you've had a beer, you're on your way home and or you six. want something to sort of, you know, help you adjust. So you're on the way home. Spoken like a like a true economist. This is, this is correct. Good answer. We need some border adjustment policy yeah, on answer. the way home. So, Richard, you live in Lausanne, but you know you you will still know this question quite well. There is a duopoly of sorts in in Switzerland, and it's not Amazon that we're talking about or Facebook, but Co-op or Migro. Are you Team Co-op or Team Migro? Okay, so I'm pretty agnostic, but I would. I normally go to co-op first because, you know, if you want to buy a bottle of wine and have a beer at the same time, yeah. you don't have to go to two shops. Thank you. In the old days, Correct. underneath every Migros, there was a uh, pick and pay where you could you could buy your beer and then you go over and buy your groceries or vice versa. But they were always right next to each other. And with the reduced number of outlets, it's gotten problematic. But I like Migros for lots of stuff, too. We, we should mention before we go, Richard, so we also do a, a plug your stuff bit in all of our interviews. So this is the opportunity for you to tell our viewers where people can find you. What yeah. should we look out for in the coming months? Right. So I'm on Twitter at Baldwin RE and I'm easy to find on the internet. If you type Richard Baldwin into Google, I'm the first one that comes up. I, I actually searched for the song, uh, the Tony Braxton song. I thought it was Unbundle My Heart 
but it's, it's actually unbreak my heart. It turns it's gonna, out it's going to come. And then tell us a little bit about the Geneva trade platform. I know that's a new, that's a relatively new thing you mentioned. Yeah, we're very excited about that. That's just, just started up and it's kind of like coming together, funding, interests, people working for it. It's really going to, the, the basic idea was to provide a way to knit together the trade community more than it was before, especially breaking down some of the silos. So, you know, the diplomats, they all know each other and, all, and, and then there's an NGO community and there's an academic community. And even among the international organizations, there's some like lack of, there's some silization between the ILO, for instance, and the WTO. And so the Geneva Trade Platform was a, a space where we're hopefully get more of a conversation going on, on that sort of thing. And, and we're getting lots and lots of progress on that. And we have an online thing called Beyond Trade Networks, which you, you join. It's like a little bit of closed LinkedIn for trade one. So those are, got, those who are listening who are in trade, I guess not just in Geneva, but anywhere can be part of this and join the conversation. Yes. Fantastic. Very good. Richard, thank you very much for joining us and for doing some trade planning. Great to talk to Wisconsinite. Have a great evening. <laughs>